This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Awakened by Death, recorded February 23rd, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. We're going to, in fact, let's do this right now. Let's set you up with this so people can see you. If you don't mind standing up, Todd, and there's you. no way I can sit there. No, you can't sit there. Okay. Everybody has to be able to see you. It's about my special cushion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you bring your teddy bear too and your blanket? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> you might need it. You don't know these people. <laughs> so wait, I'm going to give you a little tiny bit of an introduction here. Well, I'll sit down while you're doing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Smothers Brothers or something. <laughs> uh, Todd has been coming to the center. How long? When did you first start coming? Do you remember the year? Fred? How <laughs> did you start, Fred? It's about uh, 92. I okay, so I started about six months after Fred. Okay. So... He's an old-timer, and I would say, I think uh, he'll confirm this, and I think maybe he'll talk a little bit more about it, but I would say of all the afflicted emotions, the one that has dominated Todd's life has been grief. And when he first started coming to the center, he reminded me of a character out of a tragic Russian novel or something. He had that look always on his face of, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, the paintings of the saints, they always look like they've been tortured for the last year. Oh, come on. <laughs> yes, that, yeah, something like that. And numerous thoughts, which is common, but the accent here was this grief, and that's what Todd was dealing with a lot. And I must say, I made very little headway with him, I felt. And he became my guinea pig. Uh, he was the subject of some of my more radical experiments. <laughs> Once uh, on retreat, he was complaining about this incessant thought and so forth. So I gave him a task to uh, start a visualization of digging a hole in the earth and to keep going on the retreat and to keep digging, not stop. So everybody else is sitting there trying to ignore their thoughts, and he has to co continually generate thoughts in the formal meditation, outside the formal meditation, and so forth and so on. So I was hoping he'd get enlightened at the end of the retreat. He didn't, didn't get enlightened. He got exhausted. <laughs> and then uh, later, uh, one of the numerous tragedies uh, that's happened in Todd's life happened to him, and he came over and to my house and... Uh, I didn't know what to do for him, so I got him drunk on Uzo. Uzo, is that what that was? That's what, yeah. <laughs> and then I gave him a, a very strenuous practice to do. He had to go out dancing. That was the practice. And uh, he tried that, but it didn't seem to. Leave he him. also showed, he sent Jennifer out to get Zorba the Greek, brought yeah. it back, and then he had me get drunk. Watching Zorba the Greek. Okay, <laughs> so, anyway, time went on, years went by, and I must say, in the last uh, oh, number of years, he seems to have gotten lighter and lightened up a little bit, and uh, he didn't complain as much, and he would sit there and retreat, and sometimes he'd have kind of a beatific look on his face, and he stopped talking as much and so forth. And then this last retreat, last fall, 
the theme of which was listening to the stones, Todd heard the stones. Very clear. And we talked a little bit about at the time, and we've talked about it a little bit subsequently. And my experience has been now, a number of people, of my students, some of you, have had genuine Gnostic flashes, Gnostic openings, and they don't always last, which is fine. And I just have come to the conclusion it's better to just not make a big deal out of it in the beginning, just see what happens, let it sit for a while, and whatnot. And so that's been going on, and we've talked about it, and uh, I think Todd still hears the stones very clearly. And then there's another tradition around here, uh, such as we have any sort of traditions whatsoever, and that is that you don't teach unless either I ask you to teach, and I might ask you to teach even though you're not awake, but you're just an advanced senior student, and I need some help, and uh, so forth. So I might ask somebody after a while to lead foundation studies classes or whatever. But if you're an awakened, if awakening has happened, let's be careful with our language here, and you are going to be a teacher in your own right, you have to be asked to teach, and not just by me. And so not long ago, a question was left in the question box, and it's, what was the key or keys that turned the lock that sent you naked through the gate? Boom, there's the question and the request for a teaching. So I got a hold of Todd. I said, this came for you. Are you ready? And he said, well, <laughs> there's no one here to be ready, but <laughs> I'll give it a try. So uh, I'm going to turn uh, the microphone over to Todd, and he's going to tell you a little bit about his background, a little bit about what happened on retreat, and then we'll have time for questions and answers after. Okay. Okay. Here, why don't I give you this just so you can track that over? Okay. Well, okay. So the the question was, um, what was the key that turned the lock, sent me naked through the gate? And all of you here know that I'm going to say it anyway. There is no gate, and there's no one that can go through the gate. And that might seem kind of cliche, because we've been coming here, a lot of us, for a long time. It's not cliche if we sink into what that means. So what led up to this uh, this shift in the in this last retreat was a series of things that happened over several years, actually been going on since the year 2000 at a retreat with Andrea. There was a kind of an opening. Andrea and Joel were taught several retreats in the fall together, and they were <laughs> very uh, energizing, the two of them. Um, a lot of this contrasting energy together. And this retreat um, was basically we were watching our breath. And I was sitting up in Alder Hall, and I was just spending a lot of time gazing at the wall and watching the breath very, very meticulously, very precisely. And I got to this point at the end of a cycle of breathing, the out-breath, 
And there was this little brightening that happened in the space. It's like being very meticulous with the breath, following it very, very closely. Suddenly when the breath stopped, there was this kind of brightness. And as soon as that happened, of course, it was like, wow, what was that? And the mind was gone and for a little bit. And then, you know, I, I sat back down with it again. And after a while, it happened again. There was this brightness. And then I just kept sitting with this and sitting with it. And I began to notice that the brightness was there when the breath would start to move back. It would move through it. And I became more and more aware of something about this brightness that was just very, very familiar. And it was extremely freeing, and yet I had no conceptual idea of what it was, particularly at that time. But it was very freeing nonetheless. And I continued with this, and finally at one point I started hearing this kind of buzzing sound. And then it was like, whoa, I remember Joel or Andrea talking about this. There was just this buzz, this little kind of buzzing. So finally I went down to the dining hall looking for someone and I found Andrea and I asked her about this this whole thing that had been I told her about how, you know, at the end of the breast there was this kind of brightness and then this buzzing started. And she sat me down at the table, down in the dining hall, and just kind of looked at me and had this funny little grin on her face and she goes, I think you need to go back up and watch your breast some more. And so, you know, I've been through this kind of thing many, many times, always a trip. But this one was different. And But I, I knew that there was something funny about the buzzing. Within the next day, that buzz had turned into a sore throat. And I could actually, I was watching the process of a sore throat coming on. I was very aware of the early stages of a sore throat before it was a sore throat. It was a, this kind of hum. So anyway, I pretty much, after the retreat, I just... um I went back to my day-to-day working and meditating in the mornings, but I noticed that this brightness was still there. And every time I would sit to do the meditation, there was this brightness. Uh, You know, it wouldn't be there until I would start watching the breath meticulously, and then the brightness would come, and then I'd be aware of the brightness, and then it would, like, be there. The breath would start moving back through the brightness. And gradually, the brightness over the months got brighter and brighter. And then it ceased to be brightness. It was just, it was awareness. It's what's looking. And that's what was so liberating about it. When it happened the first time, was without even knowing what it was, it was the sense of being free. So, for a long time since then, probably from about 2001 to the present, I've been doing this practice of watching the breath, getting to the stillness, and then just staying in the stillness and, and the breath moving through. And then and kind of doing that and then spending the day kind of walking around doing my job as much as possible doing that. And then we had another fall retreat. I think it was 2001. I'm not sure. Anyway, in this retreat, that stillness, once I got there and started paying attention to the stillness, and then with the instruction, it was also, again, Joel and Andrea. And now I'm with this stillness, and they're giving these incredible instructions, and I started recognizing my own mind, and it was this process of seeing a feeling or seeing a thought 
And when I would see it, it's like it would burn it up. It was awareness. It was just awareness. It wasn't a thought like, you know, we have ideas about things. Well, it wasn't one of those ideas. It was just what it was. It was just what it was. And these things just burn up. Anyway, on this retreat, it got really, really intense. It was like I started noticing how I was at the dining hall. All of those things about me in the dining hall. And all of the feelings that were coming up. And and it was like a laser would see them and they were like, you know, kind of like those moths going through one of those electric things. You know, they were just like, they're cooked. They're, they're just, they're transformed to awareness. And I began to notice that, you know, this, the more I became conscious of presence of awareness, the more this would happen. So anyway, this and that retreat just sort of reached a peak. It kind of got crazy. And I, <laughs> at one point I'm, I'm like kind of short circuiting inside. I started having a lot of fear around it because it was, there was nothing. And at one point coming down to the dining hall, I remember, coming in and just, I felt, I felt like, you know, I was losing it. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked across and Clavon was a few tables down and I looked at her and I could tell she could see something was really screwy with this boy. And, uh, <laughs> and I mean, I was, she said I was just pale and kind of crazy looking. So, um, <laughs> anyway, all that passed though, but it was like that burning up thing. It continued to happen. It continued to happen. Presence of awareness became more commonplace. And this is something also that, you know, through going to retreats frequently, seeing that trying to achieve presence of awareness never would work. I could never achieve it. And so what I found was, instead of achieving it, if I just let go and, and like, would just start watching the movement to have something different than it is right now, then suddenly it would be there. It would just happen. Okay, so then um, 2003 fall retreat, and there were these little spring retreats too, and they were they were also powerful. I won't go into all the details, but the 2003 retreat was one in which the burning up had kind of settled down it wasn't as big of a deal. It was just hanging out in presence, and it was sort of like, yeah, okay, no self. Okay, it's just thoughts passing through. And it was, you know, pretty, I would think at the time, it was pretty cosmic. And then the 2004 retreat came along. And what happened on this retreat was different. (laughs) First of all, I didn't have any expectation about the retreat. I pretty much was feeling as though presence of awareness, it's kind of like, what else are we going to do? It's This is it. And it's like, well, why am I going on this retreat? And so those, and I actually had been feeling that for some time. It's like, well, am I just going to go on these retreats forever? And what's the, what's the deal here? It's kind of like, why would I? And what am I going to accomplish? Because there's nothing to accomplish. And I, of course, we know this, you know. And so, But the sense that there's nothing to do here, and that's kind of pointless, was with me when we were 
going up to Cloud Mountain. Me and Robin and Vip rode up, and Vip made some remark about, well, maybe Joel means we're going to be listening to the Stones. You know, like, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. But, uh, anyway, so, um, we got up to the retreat, and it started out pretty much like many other retreats. You know, Joel's retreats are beautiful. They're just very precise, and it's also well organized. So, very quickly, presence is, is flowing. This is very, it's great. And then I come out, and I don't even know when this was. You know, I've noticed that everybody that had one of these things happen seemed to know exactly when. I have no idea when. It was one of the days on this retreat. I know that. I got that. But I'm not sure if it was halfway through. I'm not real sure when. But I came out at the end of the day and just this stillness. And I walked to my room. I opened the door. And I was getting ready to light the lamp. And I looked at my bed. And there was a being on my bed. Sitting on my bed. And kind of moving. And anyway, it was very freaky. And um, I... I had, you know, from a medical point of view, I had a an adrenergic response. <laughs> and the room, well, an adrenergic response is a adrenaline response. Yeah. And uh could you just describe the being, please? Yes, I'm just going to get to that. <laughs> so, uh so in that moment, the room just kind of lit up, you know, the eyes, the pupils dilate, you know, it's a medical thing. Anyway, the room lit up, and the being on the bed had these big funny eyes, and he was speaking in something like Chinese. It was like he started speaking, and it was like, and so anyway, anyway, in that moment, though, it was like there was a moment there where, I don't know, I have no idea what happened. But in that moment, suddenly it was Abdullah sitting on the bed, and I was in his room. And so, so I backed out of the room, you know. But you know, it's really funny because when I closed the door, I had to look again because it was so astounding what I saw in there. And I mean, when it lit up, it was like an Egyptian cave in there. It was like, it was just crazy looking. It was kind of bright and and you know the guy had beads and robes and big funny eyes and anyway and then, but it was Abdullah and so, so anyway then then and then that was the point where things were different and it's been ever since that you know you hear about all these weird things that happen you know people blowing out candles or whatever well i have no comprehension of what took place in that moment but after that I walked to my room, which is kind of stillness. And I, I, it's like, you know, opening my door, I went in and sat on the bed, and there was no sense, 
you know, before this happened, there was this mystical sense of, you know, no self. The sense of, 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 um, just this mystical thing happening. And after this, there was none of that. It was just stillness. And I sat on my bed for probably an hour. And it was like, I was telling Clavon today when we were writing up, it was like sitting in a huge auditorium with the lights out. And that was kind of what I felt like. It was just this big, empty space. Sitting on my bed, you know, like the mind would kind of quiver a little bit once in a while, like, going to say something, but it never said anything because it was just so little and it was so unimportant. And so, after a while, I laid down and I went to sleep. And there was a sense of just being aware all night. Just the sense of, and I mean, I don't know if it was all night because there was no, there was no sense of time passing. So it was kind of like, it was like, um, just the sense of being aware. And then it was five o'clock in the morning and I was up again. And then, um, I kind of sat on the bed some more and then the mind started to say, this is different. <laughs> this is significantly different than any of those other no-self things because there's no self here. <laughs> and it sounds silly, but that was basically it. It feels different when there's no self. When there's no body, there's just awareness looking out at these thoughts. And these thoughts are the awareness that is looking. So it's kind of like they're not important. And I think that's probably the most obvious thing that has happened since this. When I finally got down to my house after the retreat and there was nobody there, I went in and I sat down and it was just very quiet. My mind just wasn't doing anything. And then it's kind of like I've had to be a little bit organized about getting things done because there's, it's like, it's almost like having a lot of senior moments. <laughs> anyway, um, and I guess that's going to continue. I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get used to that part of it because, you know, being a nurse, it's important to pay attention. So as a, as a nurse, as the role of being a nurse, um, when I, I've been trying to get there a little early now, so I get oriented to the circumstance. It's working. Actually, I think I'm a lot more present with what's going on than I, than I have been in the past. I've also been teaching these advanced cardiac life support classes for years and years, and I've noticed that the number of those that I'm teaching seems to have increased since the retreat, which is kind of odd because I was kind of thinking I was going to get out of that. Anyway, so that's pretty much what happened. I, not real sure what else you'd like me to say, but uh How does that do with you about this? <laughs> <laughs> he was really mad. He was really mad. I could tell no, he was very good. Are you mad? Actually, you know, it was interesting because um I went to 
it was probably towards the end, you know, it's more than the half of the tree. And it was the evening, I usually don't go to my room, I usually go and hang out at the dining hall. So I went that day and just sat there, you know, which I, it's, I usually I don't do that. With the light out. With the light out. Yeah. Yeah. So he came and he opened the door, but I noticed when you open the door, you look towards the light that was in front of the dining hall. So I was looking at you, I was saying, boy, he must be blind now. You know, he cannot see me. So I didn't say anything. I just sat there. I just wanted to see what you're going to do. There's <laughs> <laughs> so, a setup. <laughs> so then I know the moment you came to turn the light on, which I wish there was no light. So then you, before you hit the light, I said, Todd, God is waiting for you. You know? <laughs> so you turn the light on, then you just shut it down, close the door, <laughs> then you came back and you opened the door. And <laughs> 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 then you closed the door again and you left. <laughs> that was it. And thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, it's Mary. So after you got home from the retreat, did you have any doubt? Did have doubts arisen since this big E? Have you doubted that it's the big E? <laughs> good question. Now this is a funny thing because thoughts continue. They're just not as they're not as big as they were. They're not as uh, they don't have that quality that before they had. And so thought about what you know is this is this enlightenment? And it's just a joke. It's just absurd. These 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 are thoughts. And when actually when I went over to talk to Joel at the retreat. I went in and we talked for a little while and he goes, well, okay, so I'm going to ask you, tell me, how do you feel? And he goes, say to yourself, I'm enlightened. And then how do you feel? And I didn't feel anything, basically. It's just a, it's just a statement. It's a, it's a thought. It has no significance, really. It's, and then he asked me, okay, now say, I'm not enlightened. How does that make you feel? Nothing. It's just a thought. And why would it make me feel something? It's interesting. So that was a difference. Now, there have been times when I found myself doing things which you could say, wow, that was not in <laughs> And, but you know, it's funny because those kinds of thoughts come up. Can you give an example of that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I had a patient at work that was, um, that had a bunch of psychological problems. It was very kind of difficult, although I'd been in, and he was just a sweetheart, just a great little guy, but he was confused, and and I was trying to avoid having to give, put him in any kinds of restraints. Sometimes these patients require restraints, and we really try not to put restraints. I really try not to put restraints on patients. 
Anyway, so the phone was ringing, and there was another patient coming, and I was like in six different places at once, and all of a sudden I see this guy is standing by his bed. He's like, you know, real unstable. He could fall, break a hip, you know, and so it's like, holy shit, and I'm running in there, and it's like, you know, it's like kind of grab the guy, and I get him in the bed, and but it's like there's somebody else that's helping, and I'm like telling her to, you know, get the water, you know, and it's like not being... Spiritual. <laughs> so anyway, when it was all over, there was, you know, a lot of adrenaline. It was like, oh my God, this guy. And I was like, oh man, is this because, you know, is this because I've been going to too many retreats? I mean, I gotta pay attention while I'm here. I can't be spaced, but I, you know, there was all these things going on. And so these kinds of thoughts are the garden variety, you know, neurosis thoughts. So when it's all done, they're just thoughts. But there was this thought that came in and says, maybe you had a good Gnostic flash, but this is uh, maybe... And then it was that thought would seen. And then the whole rest of it would seen. And then it was just presence of awareness. It's just right here. And as time has passed now, there have been a number of these kinds of things where for a moment there's like this confusion about, wow. Well, what is going on? And then they're seeing the thought. And really that's it. It's that process of burning it up. And, and, and it's like, I would imagine, I mean, everybody's way and everybody's path is different. Um, but I would imagine there will always be some little things that will come that will go, Hey, I'm real. And for a moment, they're going to be real. And that's probably good. I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, I've noticed one thing about all this with the mind. The mind is cranking out thoughts sometimes, and some of them are real retarded kind of thoughts. <laughs> they're just really retarded. But the thing that's interesting about them is if you look at them, you realize that these are a gift. There's nothing about them that's wrong. They're just what they are. And we don't know what they are. See, this is, this is the thing. And I think this is for most of the people here. I would imagine that's why you're here is because there's something telling you that the world is not what our minds are telling us. The world is something quite different than what our minds are telling us. And, uh, so that's helpful. Would you say then that since that time, since the retreat, you have not suffered? No, I've not suffered. I've had a lot of back pain. I've had a lot of, well, piriformis pain, butt pain. <laughs> Got a lot of musculoskeletal kind of issues that I've had for years. And they've been a problem for years. They're not really a problem anymore. They, I mean, I, you know, spend a lot of time stretching them because they're asking to be stretched. They're asking to be listened to. So we li we listen to them. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's all perfect. There's really nothing wrong. And that, I think, is... That is the thing that um, the human condition gives us suffering for us to wake up. And there's really no other reason for it. And I got catapulted with all of the deaths that happened over a, 
I don't know, over a 15 year period, there were, there were deaths and, and huge losses every two years or two to three years for over a 15 year period. And every time, you know, I think I was just about kind of getting to where I might be able to cope with this loss, there'd be another one. There was the death of a son, and the death of a girlfriend, and then the death of another girlfriend, and then my brother had a huge stroke, and he couldn't speak, and then he committed suicide three years later. So it was like all of these real juicy kind of traumas. <coughs> and each one of them, you know, fortunately, I was drawn to Joel after the son died, and after the 20-year marriage with Clavon <laughs> fell apart. It was her fault. <laughs> but um, I was I was drawn to the center with all this stuff. I mean, my life had just fallen apart, and it was showing me something which I could not. I just was not willing to look at. And then Joel, you know, gave me a little. I'd come and talk to him and. We'd have these little conferences once in a while, and he'd give me some practice to do, and I'd go and do it, and I helped. I think it helped. And gradually, you know, and I'd be going on these retreats, and big hunks of it would fall away, but there'd be more, and it was a lot of, a lot of stuff to um, look at. But finally, as this whole thing has moved along, I've realized that the sorrows, the griefs, the miserable things that have happened, they made me look. I would never have done these practices. My life before the deaths and all this happened, we were <laughs> we were just very happy with having a good time and, and going to work and having this little life that really seemed very permanent and solid. It was a pretty good delusion, but wouldn't last. It couldn't last, obviously, but there was a lot of uh, belief in this, and then Clavon leaving, it just sort of fragmented my world. And from that time on, there was just this little hole in my life. And that hole, it just kept getting bigger. And I try to fill the hole in with stories, try to go over here, but the hole was always there. And it showed the transience in a way that nothing, no teaching could show me this as clearly as the actual loss of a loved one. And so it happened repeatedly. And this really just kind of hammered this, this truth of, of transient home, really made it real for me. And by making it real, then it's like, that reality of a solid, real, separate self starts to fray around the edges. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold water. And so it's, it's, you have to then question your whole world. And so my whole world was starting to get kind of fuzzy and not very solid and very uncomfortable. And it would get very uncomfortable like that and then there'd be another death. And so it was kind of an interesting process. I don't really think that it's probably the best um, <laughs> way to go for a spiritual path to have frequent deaths like that. Although, looking back, it was it was perfect. It had to be this way. And this is the thing. It's like our lives are just what they are. 
you know, and we struggle and struggle and struggle, and we think that we can somehow make it better, but we can't make it better. It's already perfect. I had a real insight into this when Bonnie, who was a practitioner, used to be uh, in the practitioner's group. That's before I was in the practitioner's group. As a matter of fact, I started coming to the practitioner's group taking notes for her when she was sick. And she she was my friend, and we had a kind of a relationship going. And she was a nurse at McKinsey Willamette, and I was a nurse down in Roseburg, but I, I was only working half-time, so I would come up and spend a lot of time with her. She got sick, and it was cancer. She had liver cancer. And she came home from work one day, and three weeks later, she she died. And... When she came home and she got the diagnosis, it was like two or three days into this, she suddenly, it's like she was really sad, you know, she was crying and stuff for a few days, and then suddenly it was like, it was different. Suddenly, she goes, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about anything anymore. It's Worry's done. And she was, she goes, let's go to the coast. <laughs> so we went to the coast and we did a lot of stuff and she was dying. So that was a, that was a kind of a powerful thing. Anyway, I'm rambling here. Yes, Kiva. What about your emotional world? Uh, what happens with your emotions? How do you see them? Are they like your thoughts? Do they burn off? Or how, how does that work? Actually, thoughts, emotions, all of it kind of play together. Um, and this was something, um, I'll digress here for a moment, because right after you know, another one of the big horrible traumas was this slide. We had this big mudslide down there, and a bunch of friends were killed, a girlfriend, Clavon's best friend. And... and uh, Right after that, I, there were so many emotions. It was just swimming. It was just horrible. I mean, I, I thought I had some understanding. I think this was a, a great breakthrough. I thought I had some understanding. I'd been coming to the center for a long time. I thought, like, wow, yeah. This thing happened. It just, it just wiped me out. I was, like, toast. And I had all kinds of emotions, grief, just the horrible, just the pits of despair. And I was... After a few weeks, I was in that little bookstore that used to be in town called Paralandra. And there was this book in there. It was called The Spectrum of Ecstasy. It was by a, a guy named um, Nigagpa Chogyam and Khandro Dishan. And it's about emotions. And anyway, I found this in the bookstore, and I started reading it in the bookstore. And I had read the first chapter in the bookstore, then I bought it, went home, and read the rest of it that night. And since then, I've probably read it a dozen times. And this book really brought the whole emotion thing home. And Joel then adopted the book for the class and went through it. Joel gave us practices, and we did very precise practices for a long time. Uh, we did a retreat. Actually, there have been a couple of retreats. And even before that, we did a retreat on, on emotions, uh, even before this book came along. And then we did another one, and Andrea did some emotion work as well. So, anyway, yes, emotions are wonderful to work with. They're very slippery at first, but it's important. Emotions, like, for example, anger. 
and I had a lot of anger after the slide. I mean, I was furious because this logging company had logged these trees up above our property, and they left all this debris down in the mountain, down into the gulch there, and they didn't clean it up, and they were supposed to. They didn't do it, and because of that, all the rain built up, and then there was this huge slide, and all these people died. So, you know, somebody to blame. And, you know, the, we have our precept, not to blame, to blame others for our own unhappiness. And it's a powerful precept. But this helps you work with the precept, these practices of sinking in to the anger. When the anger starts to happen, you drop the story. And sometimes you have to be quick, because when the story's gone, there's not much left. You start to notice that, gee, if I drop a story, the emotion, well, what happens? It's like it's very, very connected to the thought. Sometimes you'll have emotions that will just come up, though. No thought. And then the thoughts will start, you know. And those are actually easier to work with because they're there and you feel them and you can sink in. And this is, this is really, for me, this was the, the big secret with emotions is when you feel it, Rather than thinking about it or trying to understand it, to just feel it and to be right with the emotion as it's with you, as you experience it, and you sink into the emotion rather than trying to get to the end of it. So if you're feeling really horrible, and a good example is sometimes I've gotten this kind of a queasy feeling. Um, I've, I, I used to get them a lot after someone would die. And I would have this kind of this, this queasy feeling. And I, I realized that I couldn't get away from it. And when it first happened, right after the son died, I went in and had a big medical workup because I thought I had something organic wrong and it was nothing. It was just grief. And so what I found is I couldn't really deal with it. So I, I realized it, it's got me. I, I mean, I felt like, you know, a bug with a pin in it, you know, and I'm like, Okay. And so I would spend hours at my house down in Umpqua just sitting and go, well, you know, have your way with me. I can't get away from you, so you own me. So if I'm going to die, then let's let it happen here. And I remember those kind of, you know, dramatic kind of stuff. But what I finally came to was, yes, indeed, that's really the approach. I wasn't very refined in the way I was doing it. And I was, you know, kind of conceptualizing too much. With these other practices, it was more, it was more precise. And after doing meditation practice for years, there's a kind of precision that starts to develop. And, and so you could kind of hang out with the emotion and actually feel it sink into it without any desire for it to be gone. And you end up in a kind of a spaciousness. It's like if you want spaciousness, though, if you want to get to spaciousness, you will never get to spaciousness. So it's like it's a, it's a kind of a resignation. It's like you, okay, I'm just going to be with this. Anyway, and it's like and it's appreciation. You appreciate it, and when you begin to appreciate in your life, suddenly there's no problems. Fine. Did that answer your question? I was wondering too about now when emotions come up. Do you get moved to tears still? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not like emotion goes away. Oh no, no, no. It's wonderful. Yeah. 
Sadness, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What about fear? 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 Do you have any fear? Sometimes there'll be fear, and it will come through, like, sometimes it work, like, well, for example, that circumstance mm-hmm. that I told you, the guy is, like, going to fall. And it's like, you know, an adrenaline surge, and I'm in the room. And it's very functional. You know, fear is a useful thing. But that kind of fear, that kind of anxiety, sort of neurosis thing that I would say I became quite proficient at experiencing for many years, this sort of free-floating anxiety. I haven't had that since this. So you don't have any fear that the self is going to come flooding back in? It's interesting. Um, I think what it is is that it's okay. If the self wants to come, it's fine. It's not a problem. The self is not a problem. Self-sense, it's just it's an emotion thought. It's all it is. It's arising in consciousness. It arises and it passes away, and it's always doing that. And you know, so it's you know, I could I can conjure up a sense of self any time. It's fine. Not a problem. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about social security and global warming? <laughs> bummer. It's a bummer. Uh, but you know. Does it change? I'm, I'm seriously, you know. Uh, and Bush, you mean? Bush. <laughs> Is there a subtle shift uh, for you about it? Stuff well, out? a lot of the anger and a lot of the all that stuff, it's not there. You know, George Bush doesn't exist. <laughs> it's it's really funny. It's like these are these are thoughts. <laughs> these are thoughts, and they're only thoughts. And this is this is kind of weird. It's like if you realize these are just thoughts arising, and you know we have a collective think tank going on. You know, the, the well, television. I'm sure that you were going along with less and less suffering as time went by with your own practice. Absolutely. So that some of these things weren't as profound for you anyway. But what I'm saying was, is there more of a shift since this change? Is there, you're, you're watching it, but you're removed from it. Well, yes. But there is, there is. Emotions and things come up about it. Emotions do come up. And sometimes you go, what a dummy. But you know, they're thoughts. And it's like, Back to the retreat, you know, it's like in the moment of sitting on the bed, being in this auditorium, that was kind of the first time I'd ever really witnessed a mind in its proper place. The mind is very small. It's just very small. It's not, it's like having a television set right in front of your eyes constantly all day long and we're focused on it. But actually there's just a whole lot of space. And then there's this little voice and these little things that are going on. They're, they're smaller than that. So they're not, they don't have that real live kind of overpowering <laughs> sense that they used to have. I'm not sure I'm really kind of getting at your question. But I still, you know, I'm very concerned about some of the things that are going on. There is that, you know, and it's just a thought. But nevertheless, there is compassion. And I send money and I send lots of letters and whether they do anything or not is, you know. Yes, Viv. Um, when you first started sharing with us tonight, you sort of used the 
retreats over the last five years as kind of a backdrop. And then you, you noted uh, what seemed like a bunch of small steps that were taking place. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really helpful for me. And I wonder if you could expand. You mentioned the brightening that when you were doing the attendance to breath. Because I know for me, when these little steps occur on retreat, particularly is yeah. when they're more apt to, to happen, uh, then there's that immediate trap of getting into the wanting to repeat it, you know, right. wanting it to, right. oh, now here, this must be something, you know, and now we're getting somewhere. Right. So, of course, um, you know, even, even at an extremely subtle level, this sort of game playing starts up where it's like, well, maybe this, okay, in this meditation session now, here I've got an extra 10 minutes, maybe I'll sit down and maybe I can, that brightening, yeah, let's go for that. (laughs) And you just said a sentence or two when you were sharing with us earlier where you just kind of said how you learned to get past that one. I'd like to hear. Okay, well, yeah. I think that something that has been occurring to me for a long time, I think it was in the loss of loved ones, that after someone had died, like um, most recently, um, I had a, a girlfriend that died in this slide, and we had spent a lot of time together, and then all of a sudden she was gone. And I had the sense that I didn't know her completely. She died. And there was kind of grasping to try to understand what it was that I had failed to do in this relationship. And it's kind of interesting. It's sort of like realizing that thinking that I knew her, thinking that I somehow knew who she was, was the blockage between actually knowing her. It was like that image of who I thought she was was somehow the blockage. So that had a tremendous impact on everything. So in the same way with a meditation and with going to retreat, there was this realization that if I form some idea about what is happening, really take it on as like, this is my experience and I really want it back again and I'm going to go get it. That that precludes its ever coming up again. And it's for the same reason. It's because if you think you know what the experience is, you've just cut it off. You just have blocked it. It's funny. It's like our minds obstruct our ability to know directly. On a retreat... I don't know how many years ago it was, but I remember you making a comment on the retreat. It was something about the meditation, and you had had a profound kind of an experience. And I remember you actually saying, it's something about just really relaxing. Really relaxing. And that's right. That's that's so true. But you can't relax if you have some idea about what's going to happen. So it's like really relaxing, really dropping into the space that you are in this moment. That's really all you can do. And if you're trying to dredge up some experience that you had before, it's just the mind. 
and probably a useful thing to know is that whenever that's happening, if you just recognize what it is. I mean, since this last retreat, I've noticed that whenever the mind is speaking, it's like whatever it knows, I don't know it. It knows it. The mind knows stuff. I don't know anything. And it's really true. It's like thoughts come up. And if it's a memory about a spiritual practice, it's just all the more enticing to get trapped, you know. But I don't know anything. I mean, really, it's there's just this space, and that's what we are, you know. Another thing that's interesting about all this is this whole thing about death, you know. And I think one of the biggest, most shocking realizations about all of this is that death, death really is life. Death is this space. And that might sound really weird, but I mean, it's like we have ideas about everything. Well, our ideas about death are just wrong. Death is life. Death is what gives life life. It's this space itself. It's all coming out of this space. And this space, I mean, it's death. Death is this nothingness that we are. And then this nothingness plays all of these various tunes. <laughs> Did I answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, it seemed like you were saying that the one critical event was when you got sort of shocked into the stillness. What predisposed you to be able to receive that gift, do you think? Was it this state of sort of confusion or uncertainty that you were in or doing the, just your faithful practice or what, what was it that? I have no idea what happened. I just know that when I was at the retreat at the beginning, I was very, very quiet, very, very still. And there was this sense of being very still. And there's nothing wrong with that sense of being very still. It's wonderful. But I wasn't really in a particularly confused state. And actually, that's kind of unusual. You know, that, I mean, years, many, many retreats have just been fraught with confusion and all kinds of dilemmas and struggles. But uh, the last few years, that's pretty much died away. But... I don't know. I, Joel used to do this thing where, you know, he'd get everybody relaxed, give them a nice meditation, and then he'd... <laughs> really loud. And, and, you know, I think that's probably what you were shooting for, huh, Joel? Well, everybody, if you notice this when he did it, your mind, for one instant, came to a stop. And if you open the door to your room and God's sitting there on your, <laughs> on your bed, it might cause your mind to stop. <laughs> especially, if not, especially if not too much is going on in your mind to begin with. That's part of it. So, you know, there's a, there's a clarity there and the mind is not in its normal mode of immediately thinking up an explanation or a story. How can I fit this into my life? So it's just something... There it is. It's unexplainable. The mind cannot think in that moment. Could you say that the uh, that shock really shook you deeper into where you already were? It wasn't. It didn't take you to another kind of 
experience. You were already sensing and participating in this stillness. Except that when this happened, it was it was very different. After that moment, when I went back to my room, the sense of stillness was gone. It was just stillness. There was no sense of me having a mystical experience. There was just stillness. And then when I went to see Joel, it's like I really didn't know what to tell him other than it's very quiet. <laughs> that wasn't what did it. A lot of people come and tell me it's very quiet. I say, oh yeah? And they go, oh! It's not so But uh, I will tell you what, what he said to me. He came, and in not an excited voice, but just very straightforward. He said, you can't tell anybody this. You can't say anything, can you? I said, no, that's right. This is, it's all, all the words, I mean, it's just bullshit. It's just nothing. I said, yeah, that's right. And we went from there. <laughs> so you guys are still talking about it. <laughs> 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 well, at a certain the point, there isn't much to say. It's, not. it's true. A lot of people think it'd be great. Why don't all the Gnostics of the world get together and have a conference and all that. We got together, we didn't have anything to say to each other. <laughs> so how was your trip over here? Is it nice weather? Oh, yes. Yeah, nice <laughs> this so, is when, oh. uh, we only have time for one or two more, so if there's okay. somebody who hasn't had a chance to speak, let's get them. Abdullah. Yeah. And my question is, towards the end, you said you see thought as awareness. You just kind of just said it in one line as you were going through. You see thought and you see them as awareness. Yes, okay. okay. So is it like when they arise, is that when you see them awareness or okay, when they're okay, okay. They're cooking that's going okay. on? Yeah, okay. It's actually very much like the breath. And I've pretty much used the breath for much of the path. I've done a lot of experiments. I've watched thought and watch the motion, all those kinds of things. But um, watching, boy, I'm like losing the thread here. I'm not sure if I'm getting to your question. Exactly. Can, can I take a stab? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think, and you correct me if I'm okay. misinterpreting okay. what you said, but he said thought is just awareness. And maybe it helps to go back to that image of the wave in the ocean. That thought is just a form of awareness. As is everything else, by the way. So thought isn't different in that sense. But normally we don't see thought as a form of awareness. We see there's awareness and then there's thought. And so now someone is aware of the thought. But yeah, yeah, yeah. when you take yeah. out the someone being aware of the thought, there is awareness. And this awareness takes all these forms. It takes the form of visual forms. It takes sound forms. It takes sensation forms. And it takes thought forms. So there's no difference between the awareness and the thought. There's no longer the sense of someone being aware of the thought, that duality, that subject-object dichotomy. There's just awareness. And awareness and its forms, even that saying too much, but at least if you go back to the ocean wave analogy, you can see how there are waves of the ocean and they aren't different from the ocean, just the way... Thought is formed they're, from the words. Yeah, they're, they're phenomena moving through consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I heard that a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, just a cliche. You know, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> the, uh, this, this idea of the way you said it, that you see it 
as a win. So I'm, I'm just saying, like, is it? Okay. I always wonder, like, is it when it takes off in the beginning or? Okay. Somewhere? Okay. I I think I got it yeah. this time. Um, you know, I think what it is, what I've noticed is as presence of awareness becomes clearer and we begin to see as awareness more, we are feeling into our experience more. We see these things as phenomena. They're arising in consciousness. We see it as consciousness. And, and just seeing it as consciousness, it is transformed. If we're looking at it from, it's me over here, and I'm looking at thought, it doesn't work quite so well. Although, when we first start our path, we do that. We we sit and we watch thought, and gradually it clarifies. Once we start to recognize presence of awareness, then it's like when we... And, and I noticed this after the retreat in which I you know, began to realize that the space between the breaths was my own awareness. It was like, it had this weird effect. And it was, I could get this recognition of presence of awareness would just come up. And after that, I had that retreat where everything was burning up. It was like, it was so easy to see phenomena as phenomena. And so I would see, oh, there's that thought. And it would come up as as awareness. And it would, like an emotion or a sense of me. And it would burn it up. It would just be, cooked. And it was that kind of um, process, although until you recognize presence of awareness, it doesn't seem like it ever happened that way for me. I didn't see it as consciousness. I saw it as ideas of consciousness, maybe, but it never was recognized as consciousness. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Okay, we now we do have to call the formal part of the evening I'll bring it to a close because um, George has something he wants to communicate and uh, we don't have that much time. Okay? Let's thank Todd. Thank you very much. <laughs> Poor Todd is like the, uh, like the Zen monk in the monastery and the Zen master was getting ready to choose someone who would go and be head of a new monastery they were opening in a different location. So he gave a test for his students, and he put a vase, you know, like, like a flower vase down, and he said, who can say what this is without using words and without not using words? And they all sat around, scratching their chins and so forth, and finally the head monk said, well, you couldn't call it a shoe. And meanwhile, the cook, it's always the cook, in the kitchen, <laughs> see, who's heard the stones a while back, he comes along and he sees what's going on and he can't resist and he comes and he kicks the vase over and the headmaster says, you are going to head this monastery. <laughs> but the commentary is the poor fool of a monk who traded his pots and pans for this big administrative job running a monastery because he couldn't resist showing his enlightenment. So maybe Todd has made a big sacrifice tonight. <laughs>